welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivik Karnak. I'm Cristiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. Welcome to season six. This is our first episode. We're back after the summer away. And we'll be catching up today on what's been going on over the last couple of months. Christiana and I dial up an old friend, one of the Queen's photographers, Henry Dalal, and we have music from Gabriella Eva. Thanks for being here. So, friends, welcome back to the podcast. We've been out for a few weeks over summer, as we always are, and we're now back with a new season, season six, and we're excited to get into what's been happening over the last few months and also what's ahead before the end of the year. But we have to start by saying that today is Friday the 9th of September. We're recording this episode. We're all in the UK and it is 24 hours since the news broke that Her Majesty the Queen has passed away. This is the end of an era. She's been on the throne for 70 years. One of the pieces of information that really struck me when this news was breaking is that her first prime minister when she came to the throne Winston Churchill, was born in the mid-1870s. She was a living link deep into history in a timescale we don't usually think about and was a connection for all that's happened in those intervening years in international politics, in human development, and of course in the environment. So many changes as we as a world have tried to get on top of these transformations. And she'd been able to see deep into that past, and bring that wisdom to the world we're now trying to create. We're going to miss her enormously. Of course, all of us are. She's fundamentally changed the UK and, to a degree, the world. So let's just start there with reflections from either of you, and then we'll hear a few additional reflections from her official photographer and our friend, Henry Dalal. and you won't want to miss that. Later, we'll share about the summer and what's to come over the next few months. I bow to the Brit sitting next to me in his studio. Thank you, Christiana. Look, uh, it's a very strange experience when you've spent your life with a queen um, and then she's gone. Um, we were talking about this extraordinary experience, Christiana and I, and I showed uh, Christiana um, the, the recording the queen made to speak to the nation about the COVID pandemic. And... I can't really think of another occasion where the Queen has spoken to the people directly on a on a crisis issue. Christiana pointed out that I had tears welling up in my eyes. Uh, we will meet again. And I'm very sorry to say that we will not meet uh, Queen Elizabeth II again. But whatever your views might be of democracy and monarchy and the idea of a, of, of a monarchs having a role in a, in a constitution in a state, whatever your views might be, um, I think there seems to be appreciation of that particular individual in that office for a long time and adding enormous dignity and weight to some version of what the constitutionalist Walter Badgett quite brilliantly called the dignified part of the constitution as different to the efficient part. Uh, she represented a notion of statehood, which I think is probably linked to a notion of citizenship, which is in many regards uh, representing the best of us. Well, I'm very glad that you've come around to those sentiments, Mr. Paul <laughs> Dickinson, because those were not the sentiments that you were expressing um, scarce 24 hours ago, where I was the one who was all sentimental about this amazing woman. And 
Much has been written, obviously, in the past few hours about her. The, the words that come up for me when I think of her is first equanimity. Mm. What equanimity she showed during, no matter what the situation was, she was really um, such an example for equanimity to not letting anything from the outside disturb her her grace, her 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 grandeur, her her stability. Um, it was really so beautiful to watch that on so many different occasions because most of us do get all mixed up in whatever's happening yeah. outside, right? Whatever input we receive from the outside. And we react. Then we react. Yeah. And, you know, she did not react. She really showed how we can decrease our reactivism and uh, and practice equanimity, grace, dignity throughout, no matter what the situation is. So I'm actually, I am going to miss her. I'm not a Brit. I, I lived many years here now recently, but also way, way, way back as a student. But even if I hadn't, I think I would still be in deep admiration of a woman who put her whole life into the role that she inherited without asking for it um, at an age that was way too young, much younger than she ever thought. And the promise that she made in that famous speech, right, when she was 26 years old and she said, I will serve my country and my people. And she did. Yeah. She lived a life of service. She was such a bastion for trust and confidence when that is so so scarce right now. Trust is just such a scarce commodity. And she was such a bastion for, for trust. And as, as you have pointed out, Tom, over so many years, collective wisdom that she then shared, Paul and I were talking yesterday in, in the train. She had 15 ministers, 15 prime ministers. Prime ministers yeah. 15 prime ministers, and she met weekly with each one of them. And, you know, they all came to report and to consult and to ask for her advice. So you can imagine over those many years the collective wisdom and collective experience that that she had in her treasure trove um, and how beautifully and, and carefully she was about, um, about anything, nev never stepping into politics, but always being there as a bastion of uh, of trust, confidence, and equanimity. I mean, absolutely a remarkable, remarkable life. Yeah. And I think it's so healthy for us to think about time in a different way, isn't it? We're so used to like, you know, today's world, the immediacy of the next tweet or the next quarter or the next election cycle, that's about as far as it goes in our sort of like immediate gratification world. And somebody whose time on this planet and his time in the public eye spans such a large, you know, decades and decades. It actually reminded me, I've been doing some reading over the summer of this issue of long-termism. I don't know if you've come across this. There's a brilliant book by William McCaskill called What We Owe the Future. And this is a slight aside, but it, it, it made me think of this. What he points out is that if humanity survives for as long, just as the average mammal, right, no more, no less, then we'll be around for about a million years. And we've only been here for about 50,000 years. Now, that's a question as to whether we'll survive even as long as the average one, which means that there will be 10,000 times more people in the future than there's been in the past. 
And we are so close to the beginning of that story, it's kind of hard for us to contemplate. It stretches way off into the future to the point where we're the ancient ones in that story and most of the story unfolds after us. Now that mm. sort of sounds like an, an, an aside, but it sort of blows my mind that sense of time of it reaching away in front of us and how that makes decisions. And there's some element of that in what Queen Elizabeth brought to public life, to the people who spoke to her, because she brought in this deeper sense of time over decades that Absolutely. I think is something that we'll miss. It's so interesting because um, as Paul and I were writing this remarkable train ride where we didn't really know whether we were going up to Glasgow to meet who yesterday was Prince Charles and today is King Charles III. Um, and then we had to turn around and come back. So quite, quite, quite the train ride. Um, but we were talking about this different sense of time and especially because I had been um, contacted by Costa Rican press to write something about the Queen. And it, it struck me, as you've just said, Tom, that in democracies such as the UK and Costa Rica, we have such a fast cycle because we think of the electoral cycle as being the beginning and the end of things, of policies, of actions, of decisions. And, and so we are so short-term thinkers in, um, in these democracies, whereas the monarchy in this country, in Costa Rica, obviously doesn't have one, but it just stretches over a much, much longer piece of time. It stretches back and it stretches forward. And she was very aware of the legacy that she had inherited, not just from her father, but generations back. And she was very aware of the legacy that she needed to leave forward, many generations forward. So a, a very different, beautiful sense of, of time being stretched in both directions, yeah. back and forward. Yeah. Mm. Cool. All right. Well, I think that was appropriate that we start there um, because, of course, so much actually of what we talk about with this podcast is around time, right? It's about how are we going to sustain the future of humanity and create a world that we want. So let's move on to a relevant conversation that we had today. Christiana and I called up Henry Delal, Queen Elizabeth II's official photographer, to ask if he would share some reflections on his interactions with the Queen over the two decades he'd been photographing her. Now, photographers have a unique job. They get to spend close time with their subjects, getting a very true-to-their-nature experience with the person that they're photographing. And in Henry's career, one of his most loyal subjects has been the Queen. Now, Henry is a friend of ours. We've known him for many years. He actually um, is also super into climate change. And for many COPs, the climate negotiations, when Christiana was executive secretary, he came along and played a role photographing what was happening behind closed doors in Paris and at many other times. So we know him pretty well. And of course, on this podcast, we normally call people right on the podcast and do it live. But due to the nature of these circumstances, we had to arrange to call him a different time. There's great stories from him, especially if you like horses. And if you want to view his work while you listen, you can check the show notes where Clay's put a link to his website. So here's Christiana and I on the phone with Henry Delar. Are you going to answer? Look at these pictures. How do you get horses to stand like that for a picture? Henry? Hi. Hi, Henry. Is that you? 
Yes. Hi. How are you? Lovely oh, to hear Henry, from you. <laughs> so lovely to hear you. Thank you for for taking our call. You're very welcome. Very honored. <laughs> um. So Henry. Um. Thank you so much for dropping in here to our podcast. You being a, a photographer of uh, of Her Majesty the Queen for so many decades and sharing her love of horses, we just wanted to um, to drop in with you and have you share with us your, you, you know, some of your memories, your feelings, your your celebratory um, memories of having been with her in, in so many intimate moments, taking photographs of her. Yeah, thank you. Um, it was a huge, huge privilege and a huge honor for me. Um, but obviously, my, my first official portrait was for her golden jubilee. That's literally 20 years. Hmm. And, um, you know, just there were like literally photograph her one day, two days, next day, four days. Um, and then I did about six, seven sessions in April 2002. And then from there, it kind of just grew. Every year I'd get a call, a text or something, come and take a picture here, take a picture there, come and do this. It was really great. So obviously, after a while, there's there's a comfort level. I mean, it was very comfortable from the very, very beginning um, because the portraits mostly involved horses. And then after that, one-to-one pictures. Um, <laughs> every picture I took has a wonderful, funny story behind it. <laughs> like what? Tell us one one story. Well, one one story, a great um, a great one, was an official portrait they asked me to take. This took place inside Buckingham Palace, and it it involved no horses. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it was it was an official portrait. It's on my website, and we, I had, I had gone to do the recce of the room to do it, and we we had we had there were a series of pictures that I had to take, Princess Royal, the Queen, um, and a few other generals. All of them had to have a particular painting in the background. Um, and for the Queen, it was George III. It, it, the question was uh, positioning, for me as a photographer, positioning the Queen with the portrait. So I, had, uh, I, I created so that the eyes of George III were looking straight at the queen, and then the queen is looking at the subject, at the, at the lens. Same thing with Princess Dan. So it was really interesting. But um, before we took that, uh, you know, I'd done the Reiki, when was it? In, in July, August, because the Buckingham Palace was open to the public. The queen had gone to Balmoral. So I, it was a thrill to go through each room and decide which was the best room. Um, and then and then I take off September, October it was. The sitting was set for November. In October, I was in Ladakh, in the mountains in Kashmir. Hmm. High mountains, away from, from any communication for about two weeks. I arrived in this tiny little shop, uh, coffee shop, that was just it, one coffee shop with, with smoke coming out of it, surrounded by the mountains. 
And I, I, I went in there to, to use the telephone. And at, in those days, mobile phones there weren't, you know, you couldn't phone, but using a direct telephone line was very, very easy and very, very effective. So I called, retrieved my messages, and there was one message from somebody, it was Angela Kelly from Buckingham Palace. I, I didn't know who this person was. So I called, I said, look, I'm so sorry, I'm calling you so late. You know, I was thinking they're canceling the sitting. Um, and, and, and I said, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm calling you so, so late. Oh, oh yes, yes, yes. Um, thank you so much, Mrs. Dalal, for calling. We would like to know what you would like Her Majesty to wear. <laughs> <laughs> now, here I am leaning over the table, and the room is full of smoke with the little villagers around in the middle of the Himalayas. And I've got a direct line with Buckingham Palace asking me what the Queen would wear. So I thought, well, that's funny. So I know when I meet the queen, I'm going to tell her this story <laughs> to break the ice. And in fact, I did tell her this story and she cracked up and I took great, this great picture, which I call Laughing Queen. I will send it to you. And another really funny time was, um, I think it was 2010, her last official visit to Canada on their... National Day, Canada Day, they had me, they, they, I was doing, uh, photographing the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, um, and they thought I should be there the day the Queen is there for a particular photo session. So they flew me all the way there, um, and in the morning, the Queen made her big audience at, um, address at Parliament Square in perfect French, um, and then in the afternoon, it was her private time for R&R, &R, and, and that was where I was invited for, to take a picture of the Queen. The, uh, the Queen has this very special relationship with the Canadians, where every year they trade, they give horses to each other, um, where Prince Charles rides one of the horses, or et cetera, et cetera. Uh, uh, it was the cavalry black. So the Queen had given a little foal to the Canadian Mounties, called Golden Jubilee, she, during the Golden Jubilee year. And the Canadians thought it was really, it would be very nice for the queen to see the same horse and the foal that the horse had given birth to. Mm. So I was there at, um, at, you know, in the afternoon, very casual, governor's mansion. Um, and, and just before I was there with the horses, trying to position it with the right composition. So when the queen comes, everything is ready. And it was just an informal moment to take pictures, nothing formal about it. While I was there, um, it was the private secretary comes up to me and says, hello, Mr. Dalal, and hello, how nice to see you. Um, you do realize that the Canadians have been asking permission to do this sitting now for about three months, it's been planned. I said, wow, that's really great. And you are the only photographer allowed. I said, oh, God, I'm really honored. So an hour later, the queen comes and we take pictures and, you know, casual chit-chat, the queen with the RCMP and the grooms and everybody. And after a while, I take my pictures. And then the queen steps back, opens her purse, and out she brings a little pocket Leica and starts taking pictures of the horse. <laughs> and I say, but your majesty, I was told by by your private secretary who's standing here, that there's only one photographer allowed. 
So she looked at me and and then she turned back. She said, then leave. <laughs> so that was that was a good moment. <laughs> wow. Wow, what an amazing journey to have photographed her over so many years. I mean, so many of the most famous pictures that many of our listeners will be familiar with are yours. Uh, um, and thank you for all of those incredible years of your artistry and your work of bringing such a flavour of her into our lives. We'll put notes in the show notes. Um, Clay will put them in um, so listeners can find that, can find your website and can look at the pictures. But um, Henry, thank you so much for sharing a little bit of her life and your experience of her at this moment. You're very, very welcome. Yes, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, and 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 Henry, I I think you will by now. You know the uh, the phrase that describes her cant- cantankerous, but with a great sense of humor. I think you would probably say yes. You experienced her like that as well. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, she just she she was. You know, I mean, after you know, over the years, she just was. It was really lovely being with her, very comfortable every time to take a picture. Um, And the last photograph, official portrait, which was released for her 96th birthday, which I'm sure you've seen. um, After I'd taken the pictures, uh, it it was in, you know, with the the lovely tree and blossom behind. Um, As she was leaving, they called me, Henry, Her Majesty wants to have a word. So I, I, you know, went up. She was already in her car, and I said, "Yes, your Majesty, Henry. Do you mind? You you look at the pictures you've taken, make your short list, and send them to me. I would like to choose the picture myself." Mm. So I sent about 10, 15 pictures to her. So the picture that you will see that that Buckingham Palace released for her birthday, it was her choice. Mm. Lovely. Lovely. Henry, as Tom says, we will we will definitely put your website, link to your website on our show notes so that our listeners can appreciate such a beautiful several decade adventure and accompaniment that you did of Her Majesty the Queen. Um, very few people have seen her through the eyes of a lens like you have. So how beautiful. Well, it's been a huge honor. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Thanks, Henry. Henry, thank you so much. And again, our condolences, because I know that you are, are, as you said yourself, you're really gutted. And uh, I think that speaks for so many of us who feel completely gutted about her departure. Yeah, it's really bad. But I think King Charles would do really well. Yeah. Mm. Um, indeed. Good. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. So how amazing to call our friend Henry and hear about his interactions with the Queen. Now, the Queen's passing was certainly an event that is closing the chapter on the summer. But that isn't the only thing that's happened this summer. It's been quite the summer. And... I think maybe we should start with the acceleration of impacts. And this is becoming something of a tradition on Outrage and Optimism. We get to this time of year and we sort of look around and think, 
this was a bit of a weird summer and California's burning or Australia's burning or other things. This year... Or China's burning or... China's Pakistan burning. is underwater. I mean, you know, it, where to start, where to stop. Well, I think this year it started in Europe, right? I think this has been an extremely alarming summer for Europeans. We saw record temperatures across the continent. We saw 40 degrees broken for the first time in the UK, which exercised absolutely people in the UK and in an, into a sense of anxiety of what was happening. We had months and months of no rain. The country went brown. We saw fires across the UK. And that's really nothing compared to what was going on in France, in Spain, in other places. So I think this was the year in which climate change really came home for Europeans. We've often seen this on the news happening in California or Australia. But this year, it felt very close to home for people in Northern Europe. Well, Tom, and on the same week in which all of those records were being broken in Europe, and the same week in July, all temperatures were broken in the United States in almost all of the 50 states. And temperatures across China yeah. were record-breaking. So this was the first time in history that you had three separate continents breaking uh, record temperatures simultaneously at exactly the same time. Usually, you know, we have something happening in one continent and then in another one and then another one. No, this was three separate continents breaking record temperatures. And then that was, of course, before that we had a flood in Pakistan. And now we have an even worse flood in Pakistan affecting... Covering a third of the country. Yeah. I mean, just imagine that for a minute. It's more than the size of the United Kingdom underwater. 33 underwater. million people. Uh, just, you Affected. know, these numbers are terrifying and our yeah. heart goes out to this tragic yeah. situation. Um, what this is going to uh, end up in, of course, is livelihoods have been washed away. So you have homes, farms, schools, hospital, everything washed away. And these people are going to be exposed to tremendous, tremendous hunger and yeah. starvation. And I'm afraid that we will see many more lives lost because of that the lingering effects of the of the flood rather than the flood itself. Well, that's always the way it happens, right? I mean, there is, of course, an acute number, but thankfully emergency services can sort of save lives when it really manifests. But there were some statistics I was looking at the other day saying 90% of the crops in the Sindh province um, have been damaged or destroyed uh, as a result of the fact that that region received 464% more rain than the 30-year average for the reason. Nearly 18,000 schools have been destroyed. I mean, it's just beyond beyond imagination. Beyond imagination. Yeah. Um, but this is, of course, the most predicted disaster in history. We knew this was coming. We need to see, of course, a major international response. And honestly, it's been kind of quiet, the international response to Pakistan, which is outrageous when you consider early this year, quite rightly, there was outrage when Russia invaded Ukraine and the hardship for those people, as it should have been. But we do see a selective reporting of some of these different things. And the crisis unfolding in Pakistan is not getting the attention it should it deserves. But of course, it continues to exacerbate the broader issues. I mean, we see food prices spiking this year. That's only going to get worse now as a result of what's happening in Pakistan. And let's just like, whilst we're doing the negative things, which we have to do, let's add the IPCC's report on tipping points talking about, you know, the, 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 the Greenland ice sheet, talking about possible shutdown of the Atlantic meridional overturning oscillation, uh, circulation, which, which you know, could kind of, you know, put unbelievable cold into Europe. Which yeah, is let's pause there for a minute. That's a drop in 10 degrees 
10 Celsius, oh, right? Yeah. Of don't, Northern don't, Europe. You know, it, yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't bear thinking about. It yeah. kind of delivers to the UK the power of three million atomic power stations or something. You switch that off, we're going to notice it. And then and then the one that, that's actually completely blown my mind um, because of a great and long read in the Financial Times, actually, but it was also very much in the IPCC, was the methane. You know, we have methane really spiking now uh, if you look at the atmospheric concentrations. And, and, you know, this is really frightening. Scientists, they can tell uh, to some degree where it's coming from and, and a great body of it is natural. So, it, you know, it looks like the, the tipping points are really, we're, we're hitting them. Yeah. And that also goes for natural carbon sinks, right? I mean, earlier this year, this is a review of something we looked at earlier, but the three great carbon sinks in the, the tropical carbon sinks in the world, the Congo Basin, Southeast Asia, and the Amazon, the Congo Basin is the only one continuing to function as a sink. The other two are now sources. They're emitting more carbon than they're absorbing. All the while, all the while, we have oil and gas companies around the world yeah. becoming, I, mean, I don't even know what the word is, mega billionaires. I have no idea what the word is, but they, just the five European oil and gas companies have made a net profit of $60 billion over the past six months. And it is, it is just astonishing. These, these realities, you know, it's very difficult to bring these realities together. I just spent several days at the Gas Tech, which is the largest oil and gas um, conference this year in Milan. 40,000 executives from the oil and gas companies, needless to say, most of them men. And the that must have been quite a trip, Christiana. I oh, love the way. Like I love the way. It was you like into walking into the lion's den. Just I, it was so tech. odd. Were it you? Was I mean, were so there odd. many other climate-related people there? Or was just you and all these gas executives? Just, just you. I think I was the only climate voice. Wow. Okay. At least, at least during the two point five days that I was there. Industry is not going to last if that's the way it's configured. How did it go? You were speaking, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I did an um, a, a keynote and then an interview with uh, with John Defterius, and uh, I mean I I didn't mince any words. I think I was very very clear about what is going on and what their responsibility is. But what was so surprising to me is that the tone is not only are we making a huge amount of money. But we're doing so as we save the planet. That is what they're convinced because they are convinced that gas, of course, is the lowest carbon um, fossil fuel. And so it's much better to use gas than it is to use coal or oil. And gas is the future. Um, some, I think, a little bit more aware of the fact that there is a non-elastic future for um, for gas. But many just really, especially those that are not producing gas yet, just wanting to get into the party. I, I felt like I was at a piñata party, if you know what that is, where, you know, in Latin America, you have this huge piñata and it's filled with candy and everybody hits it because they want to get the candy. Well, you have all of these oil and gas companies wanting to hit the piñata and get the candy out of the piñata because they know that this is the moment in which they can get 
have a bad candy. And so the frenzy, there was a frenzy there to get permits, to extract more and to get into the business because of course everyone wants into the business because the prices are so incredible right now. Yeah. Now, the fact that it takes five, 10 or 15 years to go from drilling, exploring, exploiting out to producing gas is, you know, sort of an afterthought. Doesn't matter, they've, they've exited well before that, that's, yeah. Well, the investors have exited, yeah. but those that are actually doing the work, yeah. right, walking themselves into a stranded asset situation, yeah. because you can bet your bottom dollar that 5, 10, 15 years from now, demand for gas is is going to have practically disappeared. But they are not seeing that, right? Because the temptation to gather the candy from the piñata right now is just too big. And and by the way, you know, the, Jacob Rees-Mogg, who is our newly minted in the UK Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, said this week <laughs> he's going to lift all moratorium on fracking and he's going to extract every drop of oil from the North Sea. Now, we do require politicians to set a tone and to use their platform and their voice to responsibly move our society forward. And I'm sorry to say that despite the difficulty with energy prices now, that language is not helpful. Jacob Rees-Mogg has voted consistently against climate change action in the House of Commons. And we have a disturbing problem there, I've got to admit it. Disturbing problem is the understatement of the century. I mean, he's a sort of Harry Potter-esque villain, isn't he? He's kind of going around and, you know, waking up all the Death Eaters and trying to destroy the forces of light. I mean, it's just a disaster. Yeah, but look out yeah. for these Harry Potter-type, you know, Steve Bannon-type unusual characters because, you know, with either Steve Bannon with his kind of like semi-military look or or Rhys Mogg with his big lapels and his, his sort of affiliation with the previous centuries. Um, they're, they're creating populist profiles that, you know, quite quickly could turn incredibly nasty. By the way, I've just been told by Clay that Steve Bannon is in custody. So that's not the worst thing in the world. So let's just let's just stay here for a minute because we've raised a few important issues here. And I'd love to just pose a question to you both, which is I spend a lot of time with various hats that I'm wearing at the moment, engaging with the Egyptian COP27 presidency team, with the African Union ministers who are now trying to sort of work out how do they move forward and try to implement their climate commitments. And what I consistently hear from them behind closed doors is actually kind of disturbing because it's, we want to now develop gas. We are in a situation where we need energy, energy prices have spiked, we're either importing a certain amount of energy, and we now want to be able to be given the freedom, to be given financial resources to invest in developing gas so that we can you know, drive down the cost of energy. How do we respond to that? Because I struggle with it in all honesty, because in those situations, we're at a point where I don't feel like I have the moral authority to stand up to that and say no. At the same time, I'm aware that that's a trap that's being opened up that's going to draw those countries in the medium term into deeper poverty because the gas price will drop and they'll have invested and borrowed money to try to invest. So how do we try and put our arms around this quite difficult issue at the moment? Because that frenzy you just described at Gastech, Christiana, of those developers and fossil fuel companies, they're all out trying to lobby these governments to develop their gas fields and to invest more in gas. But we in the climate movement who are trying to find a way through this are increasingly caught in the middle. So let's just try and put yeah. our arms around that moral conundrum around what we're supposed to do with all of this. 
No, it's ab- absolutely true. And there was a, a very scary panel at GasTech with ministers of energy of, uh, of African countries, plus the minister of energy of India, um, in which that was exactly the point. We want to uh, develop more gas because, well, because of the piñata syndrome, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and this makes a lot of sense. So we've talked about this before on the on the podcast. It is not easy to stand up to developing countries and say, no, no, no. You know, the North developed with their uh, fossil fuels, but now you coming quite a few decades later, you're not allowed to develop with uh, with any fossil fuels. You have to incur the uh, the risk and the cost of moving over to other uh, other fuels. Very, very difficult situation where we might be able to find some, perhaps, some um, some midway is to say, okay, the gas that is already there, this is the thing, right? Many of them want more gas, more drilling, more exploitation. But from the IEA, we know that we have enough gas. So the gas that is already there, that has already been extracted, that is already out of the ground, that gas can very likely be used and very probably will be used on, if we go to Africa now, on the coastlines of Africa in cities that have high concentrations of population and high industry because that is what they need. And however, if you invest into more infrastructure, which is what they were talking about, they they were actually even talking about a pipeline that crosses the entire continent. Yeah. Who's going to finance that? Yeah. Who is going to finance that? So that, I think, is the danger when it is promised to them that they will have, or when they're lobbying the financial institutions to get uh, credit to incur these incredible debts for absolutely crazy infrastructure projects that assume that there is a growing demand. That is the piece that we have to really, really understand. There is no growing demand. This frenzy is there because there is a need to diversify the supply of gas now that Europe is not buying from Russia and, and anyone else. So let's think about it, right? The gas that Russia has been supplying, let's think about that as the envelope. And that envelope is now being filled by everyone who wants a part of that envelope, and that's the frenzy. But outside that envelope, there is no growth and demand. Yeah. That's the piece that we really have to understand. So this frenzy, it's not like all of a sudden there's more demand and we have to produce more. No. Actually, demand for gas has already peaked. What they're filling in their frenzy piñata mode is the supply that Russia is not producing or producing but not being able to sell. That's a different story. That's a very different story. But to go from there to assuming that there is growth in demand over the next 5, 10, or 15 years is absolutely crazy. And to indebt yourself as a country into very expensive infrastructure, assuming that there's a growth in demand and that you will be able to pay your debt is 
absolutely crazy. Yeah. And, and just like a word for people at home about large piñatas, because there was a big one at my work once, and if you use boiled <laughs> sweets, you know, you can actually nearly cause a serious injury, which I almost did to a colleague of mine. But look, I think on top of every word that Christiana says, which I agree with entirely, let's not forget the bombshell, or since we last spoke, the Inflation Reduction Act, a $369 right. billion, with a B, a $369 billion dollar uh, Wait, that's a positive bombshell. It's a positive, positive bombshell. bombshell. Okay, good. Commitment by the U.S. government uh, to through low taxes and 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 uh, to be distributed uh, by our friend John Podesta. He's been on this podcast. Exactly, yeah, he was yeah. on the podcast just the other week. You know, paving the way for uh, low carbon technologies. That it actually, in in many ways, paves the way for carbon tax. I think what the gas industry is not is failing to understand completely and and of course they won't because they they're called the gas industry it's like the cigarette industry will never fail to understand that cigarettes you know but my my point is that the investment in alternative technologies renewable energy and all the rest of it is now at such a fever pitch and there is such certainty of increasing legislation against greenhouse gas emissions and we'll come on to that that inevitably this piñata moment where these companies are drill, 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 building pipeline after pipeline, it's insane because we know that the same business case that funds or, or, or is confusing Jacob Rees-Mogg, for example, is the business case that makes renewables, which are extraordinarily cheap, ever more competitive, ever more interesting, and, of course, quite beyond two possible negatives – Renewables are beyond political interference, as we're discovering with a nightmare with the invasion of Ukraine and, and Vladimir Putin. And they are also beyond future taxation and regulation of greenhouse gas emissions. So there is no case for doing anything with gas unless you absolutely have to. By the way, we've got this kind of tough winter coming up in Europe. I think there should be rationing. I think people should be dressing up warm and, and taping up their windows for a year or two. There is a war in Europe at the moment. Gas is being used as a weapon. We should not be afraid to respond as citizens and with our governments recognise that sometimes things are important. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the fact that we're not taking that route is is kind of demoralising, right? To be honest with you, that mm -hmm. the UK, the new UK, because the German government is doing this and sort of making signals say we're going to have to manage demand, we're going to have to think about how do we, you know, deal with the peaks. In the UK, we're saying there's no problem, we'll just buy down the additional delta based on the fuel price rise. It's going to cost the public purse $120 billion. That money will simply be transferred from taxpayers to fossil fuel companies to pay for this increasing price. I mean, it's ridiculous that that's happening. Um, and, you know, certainly some kind of support, as you've indicated, should be provided. But this is not the way in which we're going to deal with that. And right now, they're talking about, as you say, taking every drop from the North Sea, while offshore wind is nine times cheaper than gas. It's completely through the looking glass. I would love to see something whereby people can actually get like paid for cutting their emissions enormously. You know, it's extraordinary what can be achieved with things like draft exclusion. You know, it may not be very, very nice to look at, but sellotape can do extraordinary things to cut your energy bill. But I digress <laughs> slightly. So um, I've got other bits of great news, but go, go ahead, Tom. No, 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 go for it. So things that I've just like, I've, you know, it's a bit left field here, but let, let's not forget. All right. Australia has uh, set greenhouse gas reduction targets into law. Well done, Australian Parliament. Well done, our teal candidate. That, that didn't look very likely just a year ago, right? So that is to be hugely oh, no, celebrated. Yeah. But how about this one? This is the one that... that Hold just... on. This is the moment to drop in that we are working on a very exciting a episode. very exciting episode. Yeah. To drill down into Australia with some of the uh, teal... Yeah, not the happy 
Can we not say drill, drill down? down? Don't say drill, drill down. down. Thank yeah, you, so. thank you, thank you. I stand corrected. <laughs> We're going to beam light into Australia. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, but look, how about this? Advertising bans. France, on the 22nd of August, became the first European country to ban advertisements for fossil fuels. Think about that for a minute. Du- the Dutch city of Harlem has become the first city to ban meat advertising. I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and really? you know what? Both of these yeah. came well, out. Can of- you say that again? To ban meat advertising? Yeah, in public places. That's just brilliant. Isn't it? Well, they, because they of the climate impact, of- right? That's what they said. Yeah, but they yeah. came out of citizens' assemblies. Do you know what? When you ask citizens, do you want propaganda paid to tell you to do the wrong thing citizens say no i'm not cool with that right. so well done france well done the dutch city of harlem do you got more on your good news barrel come on let's hear it do you know i actually have uh, i think i got uh no actually i've run out sorry <laughs> no we haven't i've no, got, got some one. i got some okay, india go for it. Go for we it. have go for india it. we have egypt that's go for right it, tom no no you said them right exactly india published a plan for the country's 2030 climate targets cut emissions intensity of by 45 percent by 2030 egypt came out published their plan ahead of hosting the cop this november with new goals for electricity generation and oil and gas sectors it's actually been quite an interesting active summer in terms of new policies and commitments from all types of different countries got a brazilian election coming up that could be pretty exciting finally get rid of bolsonaro that'd be good and some pretty crazy stuff out of florida by the way uh, ESG or environmental, social, and governance—you uh, know—looking, th- thinking about the future when you invest—has um, been kind of banned by Florida. Uh, the U.S. presidential candidate, uh, or he thinks he is, uh, Ron DeSantis, oh, has said the ideological agenda of the ESG movement uh, means that corporate power has increasingly been used to impose an ideological agenda. So I looked up in my dictionary what ideological means. And it means based on or relating to a set of ideas or beliefs. So Florida has made it law that you can't have ideas and you, you can't, can't have, beliefs. have beliefs. So good luck with that. And, and by the way, he's also uh, a sort of raging homophobe. And uh, he's passed this bill called Don't Say Gay, whereby if teachers say that they're a same-sex couples, they can kind of go to prison, I think. Oh, my God. He's out of his mind. Out of his Florida mind. is scary, says Clay in the chat. Well, thank you, Clay. True enough. Um. So I've, I've got and one, is going underwater. And is going underwater. But I've still got one incredibly positive thing, which is the project. But first, Tom, you have something to say. No, no, no. Go for it. Okay, this is it. This is it. I think I'm running out. Of which is to the say pro- what do you mean the prize? Is this the one that you were going to take up to the meeting that we did not go to? Yeah, that I've sent both you and Tom a detailed description of, and neither of you responded to me at all. Which I think means that, <laughs> that we got- have not understood. Okay, well, today's the day. Lucky you. Okay, Here let's see. Get comfortable. Let's see. We will see Everybody. if we have... And, and, and here's the trick, Paul. In the studio, we have a live audience. So we're going to poll the live audience to see if they understand what you're just about to present. So good luck So pay to attention, you. live audience. Live audience. Okay. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. Okay, right. Fingers crossed. Here we go. <clears throat> we are, I am quite sure, at a very special moment... Where we so far, at, so good. As a, I as a movement. <laughs> Thank you. That's an excellent idea, Paul. I'm fully uh, impressed. The, instru- the interruptions are helping as well because I think they're, they're, they're building something in me. I'm not sure what it is, but it's, it's very good. Um, we are at a moment where our movement can achieve unprecedented successes in the legislative realm. I'm talking here about policy. Uh, this could be 
financial support like the Inflation Reduction Act. It could be taxation of greenhouse gas emissions, a carbon price. It could be regulation phasing out internal combustion engines. Why am I so confident that we can now suddenly get the regulations that we never had before? Here's why. Studio audience. Drum roll. (laughs) (laughs) You may not be aware. Uh, I actually have to, I can't look at you because I have to talk at the mic, but imagine I'm looking, imagine I'm looking at you. Um, You may not be aware that more than 3,000 of the world's biggest companies have set what are called science-based targets. And this means that they committed to reducing in line with the science. And most of the world's investors, led ably by former governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, $130 trillion of investors, have committed to net zero by 2050. Net zero by 2050 is about the same thing as science-based targets. It's kind of the same thing. But pe- I don't hear a project here yet. But people yeah. are saying, people are saying, oh, they say this, but do they really mean it? Is it greenwash? Is it really going to happen? And the honest truth is, it's going to happen or it's not going to happen, depending on whether we have the policies to make it happen or not make it happen. Okay. So the point being so that, far, that so good. the most powerful institutions in the world have put themselves forward and said, we're going to do this. And then, the, you know, these are the lions, the lion corporations and the tiger investors. And then the little mouse governments are now kind of like, well, do you really mean it? And the truth is, it's up to the mouse governments now to pass those laws that we need to reduce emissions at 7% a year. Now, the other thing that's changed is, and we've been discussing this, so let's just remind ourselves, energy prices have gone crazy because of the invasion of Ukraine. So the business case for decarbonisation has never been higher And extreme weather, as we were just discussing, has frightened everyone in the whole world so they're ready to vote and support politicians who solve and governments who solve this problem. So I'm liking the sort of the hand gesture, which sort of like mimics... Everything is aligned now, and we are going to get the taxation and regulation we need if we focus like we've never focused before. Now is the time. And so I turn to the studio audience and ask you to speak loudly. Do you understand what I just said? No, but wait a second. What's the project? The project is for us to recognise collectively the climate change movement to be fully engaged. And there are very notable efforts being led by, for example, the Climate Champions team and many NGOs who've been doing this for years, of course, but they're coming together a flotilla of ships making a great armada with a single point, the the regulatory policy outcomes we require to reduce emission at 7% a year because the children are on strike and now we've got a chance to do something about it. Okay, Paul, that's brilliant. But how is it different from the reality that we've had for the last six, seven, eight years? Honestly, we've never had all of business, well, 90% of business and 90% of investors have staked their reputations on this outcome. But now they have, as they are called to account in the public sphere, they are relied upon to deliver this legislative outcomes. Look, you know, I believe the citizen is ruled by the government, but the government's ruled by the corporations and the investors. But now we've got the corporations and the investments committing to something that only the government can achieve. And therefore, the door is now open. Well, that may be one, if not the reason, why there is now such a backlash on ESG and this whole woke capitalism conversation, because maybe there are other people that agree with you that we're in danger of succeeding, and what they want is to stop 
progress. Hundred percent. Do you think? Yeah, hundred percent. Maybe we have to look at this. Yeah, we do. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. We should delve into where this pushback on ESG and woke capitalism is coming from. But Paul, I completely agree with you. Right, that you have to get to a certain point. All of this is kind of the almost like the phony war, right? Where it's not a happy yeah, analogy. Exactly. We've gotten to this point. We haven't really gotten to the. But the trouble is, how do you? How do you gather that latent power and intentionality of the corporations and the investors and make it stick? I mean, just to, on this conversation, as far as I understand it, 80 to 90% of the FTSE 100 are covered by meaningful net zero targets. And yet Jacob Rees-Mogg, the business secretary, comes out and says, we're going to take every drop of oil from the North Sea and extract every bit of gas. I mean, it seems like the logical consistency between the two is not as tight as you've described, or how do you make it tighter? That's our job. We have to make it tighter. We have to use those commitments. You know, as you you both know very well, I've spent 20 years of my life um, supporting corporations to think this through. Well, they've come to their conclusions now, and they're turning on the government and saying, well, it's up to you now, and the people are there, the people want this, and also... The unbelievable fossil fuel prices mean that there's a perfect business case for it. It's it's us appreciating that authority is taken, not given, and this is our moment to take it and to be super confident, super ambitious, super focused in delivering the outcomes that we all know we need. Okay, well... I'm going to now turn over to the studio audience just to... Uh, yes, if you point, wanted yeah. to sort of shout at the top of your voices and say, Paul, yes, we understand and you're right, perhaps. Yes, we understand and you're right. Yes, we understand. <laughs> and you're right. And you're right. And Paul is right. So this is the studio well, that, audience of like... Christiana's niece and Christiana's friend. And, and Christiana's, Christiana's friend. friend is our studio audience in Paul's flat in North London. A unanimous <laughs> approval for what Paul has managed. Unanimous to... approval because if they don't approve, they don't get dinner. Pretty much. It's going to be expensive <laughs> approval, but I think it's been very, very much worth it. I appreciate you both. Thank you very well, much. I, I would encourage listeners to tweet with the hashtag, where is Paul? And they can give us their answers. <laughs> and maybe Everybody we'll get knows. our third tweet out of you. Uh, the third tweet, I'm not racing towards that one. Twitter's a bit of a tough place at the moment. Um, but that's another whole story. So I know that we don't have forever, unfortunately, in this podcast. And maybe just um, what we should do now is for a few minutes, just cast our minds to what's coming up. So we have, um, obviously, as ever, um, a critical time of year with some very significant moments in it. Uh, It's now, as I said, the 9th of September. In just 10 days, the world will be meeting at the UN General Assembly for uh, what is known as UNGA, which is also called New York Climate Week. Um, Wait, Tom, can I just throw a little pebble into that? Sure. That may be the same day that there is a very, very important funeral in London with a lot of pomp and circumstance where every head of state is going to want to be here and not in New York. True. What is New York going to do about that? So so in 11 days, the world will be meeting in New York. In 11 days! <laughs> I, I'm sure that's the case, Christian, and I'm sure that UNGA, the UN General Assembly, will be pushed back. And I think it's going to be pretty big this year. I think that notwithstanding what you just said about the the royal funeral that will be happening on the 19th, um, I think the fact that the COP is in Egypt, that there will be a lower participation than can be the case when they are these cyclical, very big commitment COPs, means that people are more focused on UN um, General Assembly Week. So that's going to be a big moment. We will all be there and we'll be bringing you podcasts from there. 
Interestingly, I was speaking today to um, an investor, one of the largest investors in the world by assets under management. And they said that they view climate events as key priorities now for their C-suite because more CEOs go to that than go to any other type of conference. So if you want to see other CEOs, you go to a climate event, which I thought was an interesting indicator of where we've come to based on where we've been a few years ago. Um, Anything to say about Unger? And then we'll go on into COP. No, it really is... um quite a crystal ball, a murky crystal ball, whether, I mean, Anga obviously will, will, will proceed with the usual participants, but whether anything that is actually usable in the sense that it might accelerate what needs to happen at the COP, let's remember, we, we did not come with new national commitments uh, last year, and the governments gave themselves one more year, so this is it. And whether UNGA is going to help to bring that harvest of increased national commitments remains to be seen. And yeah. we know that Egypt is going to be placing a lot of uh, a, a lot of importance on adaptation, on finance, probably, and on loss and damage. Especially now, Pakistan is chairing the G seventy seven, and uh, after having one third of their territory underwater, they are of course going to go for the loss and damage agenda. So mitigation, uh, probably not a very good, uh, not a very popular topic for the G77 for developing countries will be thrust onto the developed countries together, of course, with finance. So I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that we're going to get the step up in efforts um, based on new national commitments that, that we need. Yeah. So still very concerning. And for those who missed the language, UNGA being the UN General Assembly, um, it was many years ago, uh, I'm trying to think, it was 13 years ago actually, that um, uh, uh, the climate group noticed that the CDP uh, launch events happened in the same week as the, the UN General Assembly for the previous years and therefore created Climate Week. And Climate Week, on the other hand, is where the non-state actors can get together alongside the national governments and say, hey, friends, this is a different world. We've all committed to do something about it. And quite possibly one part of the message, and I think it's an important part, is if you want to see private sector investment in your country, in your industry, in your economies, then look towards the decarbonized future and not towards uh, the history. And actually, those the bolder the commitments national governments make, the more likely they are to have strong and robust uh, economies as the century progresses. Mm. And no, that's a good point. And, and also, Christiane, I mean, I would echo what you just said, right? I mean, as I say, I've been in a lot of these pre-meetings for COP27 and the tone in them, and this is always the case, and you can't blame people for this, but the tone in them is you developed countries have failed to deliver on the 100 billion. And how can you come here and lecture us now that we should be stepping up with more ambition? And yeah. you can understand why that's the case, but it it doesn't bode well for more mitigation at this point. And they're right. You know, they're absolutely right morally to stand in that position and say the finance has not been forthcoming and that's indefensible and it needs to be as part of the global deal and how we're going to advance. So Simon Steele, the new UNFCCC Executive Secretary who just took office a few days ago, um, Patricia Espinosa's successor, Patricia Espinosa, of course, being Christiana's successor, um, is a great leader and is a very impressive person that um, I think 
we would share this position, Christiana, we have high hopes for in that role. But my God, he's got his work cut out. Yep, absolutely. And it may be that there's some genius to drafting your nationally determined contribution that helps solicit the investment uh, whereby the private sector may meet the the shortcomings in the the, the, gov- the intergovernmental payment system. I'm not wishing to make light of that chronic failure by uh, rich governments towards the, the developing economies, Tom, but I'm just saying that this is a, a race to build the economy of the future. And actually, um, governments have an extraordinary role in creating the conditions for that. They, they do. And, and I'm sorry to keep going back to this, but in these meetings I keep going to, the number that I've heard repeated most often, and I don't know who did this analysis, is that only 6% of climate finance is grants and 60% is debt. Now, we can argue that actually that gets structured in such a way that that facilitates investment and infrastructure and that facilitates growth and that gets us in the right direction. But from a climate justice perspective, it looks like countries have created this problem and now they're not providing the finances to help others meet the challenge that they've created you know that's that's the moral hurdle that people are facing that is well if you want to talk about economic justice tom uh there's actually a number of different areas we could cover but i fear that we're coming to the end of our time (laughs) dear listener (laughs) well those who want to hear the bonus on economic justice i mean you're right it's an interesting area we should get into it but maybe not now so anything else to drop in here before we go to our music oh just lovely to be with you again and great to be back and uh, hello to those listening. Great to be with you too. Lovely to be back, as you say. Um, so we have some great music this week. Just last thing from me is that um, I had the great privilege to go on The Way Out Is In, which is the podcast from Plum Village hosted by Brother Fapu. and Which t- is brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, well, it, the podcast is brilliant. I don't think you were talking about my episode. Hosted by Brother so Fapu both... and Joe Confino. Have you heard my episode? I've heard your episode. I've heard Christiana's episode. They are both some of the most moving and just wonderful bits of audio I've ever experienced. So unmissable. Well, always, always recommended. And we'll look forward to the Paul Dickinson interview. Um, That's out now. If you want to listen to that, you know where to get that from. And we will leave you with some music from Gabriella Ever. This song is called Pulling Faces in the Wind. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be back with you. We look forward to accompanying you over the next few months as we try to get on top of this critical issue at a critical time. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Hello, Gabriella Eva here. My song's called Pulling Faces in the Wind. This song is written about the boundlessness of energy, reminiscing on childhood feelings and expanding into universal ideas that connect people's experiences. Capitalism is a force in itself and people can't control the beast we have created. And I don't want this to take away from pointing fingers at corporate companies that need to change their approach as they definitely do. I also believe that the future is only sustainable with outside-of-the-box thinkers. The emphasis here is on divergent people. There's lost potential in our school curriculum and more people who are capable to contribute to our future being sustainable and we must support our creative thinkers. Let's face it, baby boomers are not going to be the ones to pick up the cheque. Let's do what we can, keep creative to find solutions and be careful where we choose to put our money. Lots of love, Gabriella. She said, if you pull faces in the wind, your face will stay the same. And he said, 
If you see something you like, buy two of them And I'm like Staying in this fam just to spend time with my grand We got a lot to live for Kids on the beach with ice cream running down their cheeks I remember how you used to look at me It just passed on, passed on Ooh-wee, to desolate Let mother grow back strong Sway your feelings out your head Embody your dance instead Chilling in the Milky Way Sad as the former sun Through a sea of people And the wind drowns out Any background noise I am present mm, I don't know if you Feel the same But I'm okay with Keeping my feelings To myself Keeping my feelings to myself Play on Life goes on Still feet on the ground Smokes and drinks on the weekends Carousel spin and your colors blend in them Hyperextending all my energy I pluck my insecurities like Petals from a flower that cradle a bee I feel your violet glow But I can only help you see What you need If you choose to see go we are back at it with another episode don't call it a comeback been here for years rocking my peers putting suckers in fear <laughs> okay sorry that's too much um but ll cool j did get it right when he said don't call it a comeback because well we were only gone for about six weeks i'm clay carnell producer of this podcast outrage and optimism thank you so much for joining us and for joining me for the wrap-up where i say a few words introduce you to our show notes, a couple thank yous, and send you on your merry way. And of course, our first musical artist out the gate is Gabriela Eva with her track Pulling Faces in the Wind. Um, Gabriela's music needs to make your weekend playlist. 
Uh, I'm a big fan of those funky, low-tone, heavy vibe guitars she has going on. And yeah, weekend playlist. Uh, Put her music on. Saturday morning coffee, maybe Saturday evening sunset. It's going to take you there. Um, The other song I really liked, I wrote it down, Feng Shui. Go spin that one. That's a great one. Gabriella's socials and more of her music are in the show notes. She does great music videos. So YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Apple Music, Spotify. It's all in the show notes of this episode. Go check them out. Okay, if you have been listening to our podcast for the last year, you're very aware that at the end of every episode, each week, we feature a musical artist or you're on occasion an artist of another medium. And that's because... We here at Outrage and Optimism believe that our ability to make and implement the solutions to the climate and every interrelated crisis that we're living through requires us to put everything on the table. And Christiana has shared this before. This is a quote from her that art, music, and poetry are some of the most effective forms of protest. They change our minds, they move our hearts, and they spur us into action. And action now is all of our responsibility. So I just wanted to share with you this vision of the end of our podcast. You know, these ending moments of the show every week are an opportunity for us to change our minds, to let our hearts be moved, and there'll be an opportunity to spur us into action. We're going to listen to artists, what they have to say. We're going to listen to their music. And yeah, I just want to invite you. Join us. Join me at the end of every episode. We're gonna hear all different kinds of music from around the world. We're gonna have all different kinds of artists who are having a human experience here and creating about it. And we get the privilege of bearing witness to what they've made and wanna share with us. I will be selecting the artists that make the show each week. I couldn't be more excited to be partnering with these outstanding uh, creators to bring you the noise. And I'm just so, psyched to share Gabriela Eva's music with you this week and I can't wait for you to hear every week's artist from here on out so that's the pitch join us every week we're going to play amazing music listen to artists we're going to change our minds we're going to grow we're going to take action okay that was my TED talk thanks (laughs) uh where are we um actually back to LL Cool J for a second did you know that there is a statue of him in Queens, New York, featuring a solar-powered boombox that plays his music. It's it's a permanent fixture, and every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and this is true, it plays his music noon to 5 p.m. There you go. The more you know. It's in uh, Flushing Meadows Corona Park in Queens. Shout out to Queens. And... Speaking of queens, thank you to one of the late Queen Elizabeth II's photographers, Henry DeLal, for taking our call today. It's a fantastic person. If you like horses, uh, this man has some photographs that you should see. Uh, you can go to his website in the show notes. I would like to add that he has a fantastic photo book titled Addressing Climate Change. Uh, I figured maybe you guys would be interested in checking that out. Uh, go pick it up. You can buy it. And uh, well, what does it look like? It You can't miss the cover because Christiana's on it. Oh, and give him a follow on Instagram. That's in the show notes too. Okay. You can connect with us on social media and LinkedIn, which I'm sure is considered social media, but I haven't figured that out yet, at Outrage Optimism. We post stuff throughout the week. We ask questions. 
start conversations and we want to hear from you. So we're in your pocket. Check us out. And last but not least, one more thing for your listening pleasure this weekend. Our sister podcast, The Way Out Is In, featured our very own Tom Rivet Karnak on the latest episode in their feed, uh, speaking on the benefit of a spiritual practice. Now, it was mentioned earlier in the podcast, but I'm bringing it up again on the episode because I've known Tom for a few years now, spending quite a bit of time together, and listening to this episode, I learned like eight new things about him. Uh, It's a fantastic listen. There's some great laughs on the episode, uh, some deep insight, you know, they're kind of wrapped up together, and I actually produce and edit that podcast as well, so play Gabriella Eva on Saturday night, and then on Sunday morning, uh, go give this episode a spin and enjoy the conversation. Link in the show notes, of course. First episode back in the saddle. Thank you again for joining us, for listening, joining us for season six. Uh, It's great to be together again. And next week, another episode coming your way. Uh, Hit subscribe or follow on your podcast player. And we'll see you then. Bye.